please turn with me back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel and chapter 4. 2 Samuel and chapter 4. Yesterday, Charles was crowned king, Charles III. I wonder, as you witnessed that event, or maybe heard it on the radio, or just anticipating that crowning of a new king, whether you wondered or whether you considered what virtue would be the highest on your list for the king, what virtue you would want for our government to have. You may say, our diplomatic skill. It's important that we have leaders who are very diplomatic, great in diplomacy in order to keep the peace on the worldwide stage. Or you may say you want someone who is very strong, strong enough to get the job done. Maybe the job of balancing the books, making this country prosperous and rich again. We're wanting something, someone that will benefit me, that will be able to make this country comfortable for me and my children to live in. At other times, maybe not so much today, people would have wanted their leaders with to have great military skill. That would have been their top priority for their king, for their government, so that they can protect the realm, protect their people, and possibly even expand the realm. That's greatly frowned upon today, isn't it? But these are many things that people would desire for a king, desire in their rulers. But I think there's something far greater and maybe you have thought of this, and there are no doubt many others, but I think one of the greatest attributes would that be, would be of being just. Being just. We hear the cry, where is the justice? Where is justice in this world? Each and every one of us desires justice, don't we? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian here this morning, there is an innate desire in us for justice. When we hear of a miscarriage of justice, there is protest, there is people bemoaning the fact that justice has not been met. We hate it. Why is that? Why is it that there is a universal quest for justice? Well, it is because as the Bible teaches, we are all made in the image of God. We all bear God's image. And God is a God of justice. God loves justice. He is a holy and righteous God who hates wickedness. And he desires justice. He reigns in righteousness and justice. And uh, here we have a passage before us of uh, telling of an occasion whereby we can see justice being enacted by a king. As I was preparing to preach this message, I was wondering what Justin Welby would preach on yesterday. 
I did wonder whether there would be a sermon at all, which there was of some sort. There are a number of passages that would come to mind, I'm sure. I think uh, if I were placed in that position, Psalm 2 would have been one of my um, top passages to preach on, speaking of the king, kissing the son, or how we need that for our king today. Most likely, this passage would not be there. This passage would probably not be there because, uh, well, it's so bloodthirsty, isn't it? We hear of murder, a king murdered by his people. We hear of decisive justice being enacted in the execution of those two murderers. But though this is probably not one that you would anticipate being preached by the Archbishop, indeed I believe it is a helpful passage for us to come to this morning because the way a king rules matters In this country, with a constitutional monarch, the king doesn't have quite the same power, does he? The same influence that an absolute monarch like King David had. But nonetheless, the way he rules matters. There was much said yesterday in the coronation service of justice. May he reign with justice so that justice is seen in the world around the nations, they say. We long for justice. And in this passage, we have a picture of a just rule. There's a principle, a godly principle, by which King David rules. In fact, here we have, I believe, a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who reigns in absolute power. Complete righteousness and perfect justice. What a great model. What a great example of a a righteous and just rule. But there is far more here than that, isn't there? We will go further than perhaps was said yesterday. Go further than just an example to live on up by. No, because here we have a wonderful picture of the costliness of salvation. We have the the, the wickedness of sin portrayed and the punishment held out to us in technicolour, showing to us the costliness of salvation in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing I want to direct our attention to this morning, the first point is the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. In verse 8 we read, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. In Jeremiah 17 verse 9, we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
And that is the picture we have here. Barna and Rechab were captains in King Ishbosheth's army. Ishbosheth was the one remaining son of Saul after he and Jonathan and others of his sons were killed at Mount Gilboa at the hands of the Philistines. Many commentators believe that Ishbosheth was the only one remaining because he was the only one that was too weak to go and fight. He was incapable. He was not a strong man. And, and that is what we see in these passages before us. He is crowned as king by Abner as very much a puppet king. It seems that he was a weak man. And as we've noted uh, at the beginning when I read this passage, at the beginning of chapter 3, we are told that the house of David grew stronger and stronger, and yet the house of Saul, that is King Ishbosheth and his reign, was growing weaker and weaker. And yet throughout chapter 3, we see it getting even weaker. Abner, that great military leader, Saul's commander-in-chief, was killed. He's the one that gathered the northern tribes together against David and was warring against David, seeking to establish that kingdom under Ishbosheth. He is the military might there. He is the, the strategist, the, the politician. And yet he was killed. He was murdered at the hand of Joab and he was no more. And so much of the hope of the northern kingdom and the house of Saul, Ishbosheth, was bound up in Abner. And now that Abner was gone, we read that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, lost heart. Literally, his arms fell limp at his side. He had no courage left in him. He feared. And when Israel heard what had happened to Abner, and how their king had lost heart and had no courage left. They were all troubled too. Well, the psalmist writes in Psalm 146, Do not trust, put your trust in princes, nor a son of man in whom there is no help. Again in Psalm 118, It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Trust the Lord. Not princes, not man. They had put all their confidence in a single man and they were disappointed and left wanting. And how we need to be reminded of the same today. No matter all the pomp, all the ceremony, no matter all the might of the United Kingdom and the power that our government holds, they do not have the answers. Do not put your trust in kings, do not put your trust in princes. Indeed, do not put your trust in anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. For He is the only one to have trust in. He is the only one who is faithful. He is the only one who is able to save. So, what was Barna and Rahab to do? They were king or they were commanders in the army possibly raiding bands, and, and they were brothers. So what were they going to do? You can just imagine 
their secret meeting, can't you? Then conniving, coming up with a plan of action. Maybe they reason something like this. Well, we haven't got any hope of getting anywhere in this kingdom anymore. Our king is weak. We know that David was prophesied to be king by Samuel many, many years ago and was even anointed by him. If we kill Ishbosheth, we'll actually be doing God's work. We'll be clearing the way for the anointed king, God's chosen king, to come in. And you know what? We'll be able to go to David. We'll be able to ingratiate ourselves to David. We'll be able to get positions in his kingdom. It's a win-win plan, isn't it? They, they, they deceive themselves. They, they argue themselves into a sinful plan of action. And then in the heat of the day, they did that dastardly deed. When the king was having a rest, pretending to go in and get some wheat, they took the opportunity and killed him while he slept. What a horrible thing to do. What a dastardly plan. They go to David and say in verse 8, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. See, they big up the, the credentials of Ishbosheth being David's enemy. And then they claim the Lord's name. They say, The Lord has avenged the Lord the king this day. They're saying, We were doing the Lord's work, and through us, the Lord, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day. They were so confident that what they had done was okay, that it was good, in fact. We've killed your enemy. We are the agents of God working out his purposes for you. It made sense to them, didn't it? Surely the ends justifies the means. How deceitful sin so often is. They theologized themselves into thinking that what they were doing was good, was God's works. And in fact, if they had lived to see it, they would have likely justified themselves even further because they would have seen King David come to the throne without bloodshed, peacefully, and take the throne that was rightfully his. It is good, isn't it, to acknowledge when God uses all things for his purposes. Indeed, this is a great comfort because even when we stumble, even when we do fall into sin, the Lord is able to use it for his glory and for his ends. That doesn't justify the sin, but thank God that he is indeed on the throne working out his purposes for his people. But I wonder how many times you or I have been tempted to use theology to justify ungodliness, to appeal to God's character or God's name. Churches with a pragmatic mindset seem to be very prevalent today. 
Most of the time, they even mean well, don't they? They're often looking towards the noble ends of, of seeing people saved. They want to see people come in to hear God's word. But sadly, they compromise and turn from God's appointed means. I was looking on your website just yesterday. And I see on your website, it says, upholding the ordinary means of grace. And this is what we need. Because God has appointed means. And we must worship. We must live according to God's will. Sometimes it's argued, but if we do this, it will attract people in and they'll hear. I've even heard it concerning women ministers. It's very easy to be pragmatic like this. Well, they've even seen people saved. They're actually gifted at public speaking. And so they turn from God's ways. Surely it proves that it's okay, the ends justifying the means. Sadly, also, it often happens when a believer falls in love with an unbeliever. Well, God is love, they say. Surely he would want me to marry for love. And they turn away from God's purposes. And indeed, in many, many other ways, we are tempted by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin promising so much, turning us from God's ways. Richard D. Phillips writes, they were disloyal, slaying their sworn lord and fellow Benjamites, Saul's son. The brothers were also self-seeking, aiming for personal advantage and unjust reward. Furthermore, they were impious, daring to justify their bloody crime by an appeal to God's will. It is undoubtedly true that God had judged Ishbosheth through the hands of these wicked men. But having so grossly transgressed God's law, they had no right to claim divine endorsement of their deed. You see, they were far from God's will. They had killed a man in cold blood. Jesus also speaks of people like this. He says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the Lord Jesus is speaking of a time much like this. When sinners stand before him as their king and as their judge and claim that they have done things, good things, in his name, for his good. And yet they had turned aside, they had never known salvation that is found in, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is all words, all action, without saving faith. And these two men 
were like that, weren't they? They came to Jesus, their king, their judge, and they stood condemned. How deceitful sin is. We must be on guard, Christian, that we are not deceived by sin's promises and arguments. Do not trust your heart. Do not trust your feelings. Do not even trust circumstances. They had the opportunity. Everything was laid out for them to do it. No, the word of God must be our authority. We see the deceitfulness of sin then. Then secondly, the decisive justice of David. The decisive justice of David. What did King David think? Did he have the same pragmatic viewpoint? Ah, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. Ah, they've done me a good deed in getting rid of him. Well, certainly not. As king, David was the judge, the jury, and executioner. He was the one who was to keep law and order. He must make judgment concerning what had taken place, the the account that they gave to him. And he saw the sin of these two men for what it was, didn't he? He saw right through their schemes, right through their explanations. And he says, uh, he sees it for what it is. So what would be his guide in this? How would he judge? What would make him come to that conclusion? Well, Psalm 72, verse 1 and 2 says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And that is exactly what David sought to do. You may, you may have thought when I read through this passage that David was harsh. That the death penalty is cruel or barbaric in some way. That, that really that is, that is the time for them but we are, are, are far more enlightened now. But rather, he was only seeking to make judgments according to God's law and execute the justice that God had ordained. Life is precious, isn't it? Every human being from their conception are image bearers of God. And as such, a murder is a most heinous crime. In Genesis 9, 6, we read... Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And that was given to Noah. The one who represented the whole of the world. Not even just humanity. All the nations. The law given through Moses at Sinai was also explicit. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. You see, God was making accommodation, making a place for the one who kills by accident, manslaughter, to be saved. But he goes on. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbour, To kill him by treachery, 
You will take him from my altar that he may die. David was seeking to uphold God's law, to implement God's justice, divine justice, as the anointed king of God's people. And we read, But David answered Rechab and Barna his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Notice, they were not the ones that had redeemed his life. He would ascribe that only to his God. It was God who had redeemed his life. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking that they had brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. You can just imagine their faces now, can't you? All so proud, all so happy for what they had done, thinking that they were going to earn a place, ingratiate themselves with the king. And yet now they hear these fateful words come from his mouth. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Well, we were thinking that. What's he going to do to us? How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? You see, they had taken a man's life without any justification whatsoever. That is what is meant, I believe, when David says that they had taken the life of a righteous man. I don't believe that David is speaking of the fact that Ishbosheth was righteous in God's eyes. But rather, he was righteous in this situation. He had given them no cause for their actions. This was not self defense in any way. No, they had killed a righteous man. And so, thus, they deserved the penalty prescribed by God for their crime. Yes, the Lord sovereignly used their wickedness to bring about his purposes, but they not him, were responsible for their crime. And they had to take the punishment that was due. And so that's what David did. A decisive justice. But where does this, how does this, what does this teach us about the gospel? This seems so bloodthirsty, so awful to our ears. How on earth does this tell anything about Jesus Christ? How on earth does this tell anything about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, here, I believe, we have the picture of the definitive justice of God. The definitive justice of God. In Paul's letter to the Romans that we read, we read in in chapter 1, verse 16... For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How is it revealed? 
God is a righteous God, isn't he? We read that in Psalm 99 at the beginning of the service. He is holy and he executes justice in all the earth. And Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. His righteousness, his perfections. How? How is it? Well, because in reality, we are all sinners facing that holy God, aren't we? We are facing a just God as condemned men and women, boys and girls. Jesus Christ is King of kings and rules in righteousness. And we are told that not only the wages of murder is temporal death, but the wages of sin is death. All sin. The wages of sin is eternal death. Separation from God's love and in the presence of his wrath for eternity. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And sadly, Adam ate. And we, in Adam, and even like Adam, have sinned. We have rebelled. We've gone our own way. We've done what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. We have rebelled against our king, as Barna and Rechab did. And, and this account before us shows us what we all deserve as sinners before a righteous king. And one day we will all stand before him. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed because he did not forego that justice in order to justify and save sinners like you and me. Rather, he spared not his only son, but delivered him up to the cross to bear the penalty of sin for his people. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that astounding? That we can be righteous in God's eyes, not only with some kind of feeble, rubbish, useless righteousness of our own deeds, but of his righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And, and that is the good news, isn't it? That is why it is gospel. Because though it is very clear about our sin, though it is very clear about the condemnation in which we deserve, and which all will partake of if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it also speaks of one, just one, the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died in the place of his people. All who come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not stand before the king in their sin as Barna and Rechab did, but clothed in the righteousness, the perfections of Jesus
But secondly, this account, we see Jesus in his perfect and just reign. We see the gospel here because we see sin in its, all its heinousness, and we see the penalty that is deserved. But the good news is, is that Jesus has paid that price, that penalty, for all who believe. But secondly, in David, we have a picture of Jesus' perfect and just reign. Ralph Davis helpfully remarks, every bit of micro-justice enacted under David's reign should be taken as a foregleam of the macro-justice that David's promised descendant will enforce throughout the earth in his own time. The justice brought by David in that tiny, postage-stamp-sized kingdom of Judah under David's rule is a pointer to God's anointed king, Jesus Christ, and his rule, not just in a small locality, but in all the earth. In all the earth. David was only able to ensure that a certain amount of justice was met. Indeed, he was a sinner himself. He sinned greatly, and he didn't judge justly in every circumstance. But Jesus, Jesus, on the other hand, will ensure justice prevails for every sin. Every sin. And and though this is a fearful thing for all who have not come to him in faith and repentance, trust in him for salvation, this should comfort God's people, shouldn't it? For God's people are often opposed, often downtrodden. We're often marginalised, often persecuted in various ways. And so often the ungodly get away with it. We see it, left, right and centre. We see the injustice in this country. Think of all those poor babies killed in the womb. Think of all those murderers that have not met justice. They seem to prosper. But justice will prevail. Justice will prevail. This is the complaint of Asaph in Psalm 73, isn't it? When he's looking at the the heathen all around him, the ungodly, and they seem to be prospering, seem to be doing so well, and yet he and God's people seem to be doing so badly. Well, then he went into the house of God and he understood their end. God has set them in slippery places, he says. God is perfect. And perfect justice is here pictured in the life of David, God's king in Judah. This is what a righteous reign looks like. But David is just a pygmy little type of God's chosen king. The problem is, is that many and quite likely many even here this morning, do not see yourselves as sinners in his sight. You're like Barna and Rechab going to David, thinking you'll be fine. You say, well, I've done enough good deeds. I've lived my life pretty well. You theologize, God is a God of love, surely he'll let me in. 
But in fact, justice will reign. Justice will reign. Just like these two men, you have sinned. And punishment must be met upon someone's head. And like David wasn't moved by their arguments, neither will Christ. He will not sweep your sin aside as David didn't sweep their sin aside. The only thing that will enable you to stand in that day is if the penalty has been meted out on someone else. And that someone else, the only someone else, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why in God, in his infinite mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ is a man, and as such, he can represent men and women, boys and girls. He is a perfect man, and as such, there is no sin in him for which he must die. He is God, and as such, he is infinitely precious, able to take the penalty due to all his people. Do you see your need of such a saviour this morning? Do you know in your heart that you have no righteousness of your own? There is no way in which you can stand before a just king like this. Then come to Jesus. Turn to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the scriptures say. Believe. How important it is then that we have a just government and king. But how much more important it is that we are justified in the eyes of the king of kings who is utterly perfect and enacts definitive judgment for sins. Let me just close by reading part of Psalm 2. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare this decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they who trust in him. Amen.